Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Alright, good morning listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio um, with Jacob and Lalita. In morning the listeners. Um, sorry, for apologies, just been a minute late um, starting, but um, we'll, we still have a pretty packed program. Um, for today, we, um, we have two interviews um, planned. Um, we have an interview with Mahmoud from the Kurdish Association, where, where he'll be talking to us um, about the political situation that's um, happening in Turkey right now. Um, listeners who've probably been reading the mainstream media have probably heard about um, the referendum um, that's going around in relation to, pri- um, I think it's president or prime minister, I'm not sure if they have a republic, Aragon, um, in Turkey. Um, so we'll be giving a bit of a shout for that and also be talking about the whole Kurdish um, issue at the heart of it. It's On the international <laughs> front, um, there's, I'm not even sure if we'll be able to cover it, but there's a lot of um, issues I actually um, want to talk about. I think maybe Lali wants to start with something. Yeah. Oh. Before we start, let's um, pay our respects to the tra- traditional owners of the land and that th- the land was never ceded. Uh, we are living on stolen land and, and we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Now, uh, there's some breaking news today about a shooting in France. I don't know if you heard that, mm-hmm. but um, it's... Neither here nor there, because it's, it's just created a lot of calamity, apparently. One policeman died initially. Mm. And then um, another one another one um, died later. But they're still analyzing the, pro- the, the, the event. And, of course, Trump's on the blower saying, oh, this looks like a ter- terrorist attack, blah, blah, blah. And speculation about the fact that, you know, the uh, election's on Sunday. And... Um, Therefore, this is going to have a influence on which way people vote. So that's something for people to be, mm. to be keeping an eye on. But there are other issues happening as well. Uh, locally, we have the 457 visa and all the fallout from that statement. Mm. And, um, of course, we should talk about Turkey and Korea. And, yeah. and I don't think anyone has discussed Korea the way, um, I guess, you and I would think about it. And historically, what people say about Korea is, is actually quite different from um, w- how the the press is avoiding um, the addressing of the issue. Um, the biggest problem has been the biased news that that always favors the U.S. It's like mm. you know the U.S. is being threatened, and the U.S. this, U.S. that, U.S. the other. No one has talked about the historical perspective. And what actually has made Korea, the North Korea, the way it is? Mm. Yeah, I think one, um, just one thing to point out with 
how North Korea, where we typically, you know, look at North Korea as this crazed, you know, barbaric kind of irrational nation that, you know, that at any turn... No, irrational leader. Irrational leader, well, (laughs) and um, it's... It's um, we get this sense of perspective that oh yes, there's this idea that North Korea is going to bomb us. Um, I know. And but here's the reality is you know for all the issues that North Korea has as a country, I don't think it represents any threat um, to anyone. Um, in fact, the what refers, um, I think what's actually important to state is the biggest threat. Is the United States. I mean, and North Korea, and you know, there's all these arguments put forward about how, you know, North Korea, they have nuclear weapons, they have, they're building up a military. Well, in actual fact, the only re, I think the practical reason why that is so is, you know, to defend themselves against um, US imperialist aggression, because the US. Uh, in when we look at the history, um, North Korea was bombed by the United States um, and lost, me, um, destroyed many of the infrastructure, and lo- and they lost set tens of thousands of innocent lives. I want to read something here. I mean, I want to just correct what you actually said a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, North Korea can be a threat. It's not that it's not a threat to anybody, but they are being provoked by the U.S. at the moment. Mm. And North Korea has its own uh, bundle of um, problems. And this is is, is an article I found written by Dr. Norm Saunders, who is a former academic TV journalist and Tasmanian MP um, at the federal... um, Australian federal senator. Now, this is what he writes, and he's, he's a peace activist and a greenie and so on. But this is what he writes. North Korea does have some missile capacity in spite of many setbacks. An attempt to fire a missile from a submarine on Sunday was a flop, with the missile covering only 30, 30 kilometers before splashing into the sea. Most of the missiles are relatively short-range ones, like the Rodong, which has a range of 1,000 to 1,500 kilometers, with an explosive warhead. North Korea is known to have approximately 300 Rodongs. But why mess around with missile delivery systems? We in the West are fixated on high-tech solution to simple problems when you have a large piece of equipment to move somewhere you go by sea. If North Korea wanted to nuke the west coast of the U.S., all they have to do is put a bomb in a hole of a vessel. The crew can be toasting the, the health of Jim, uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un with Soju while they pull the pin on the bomb they are using for the table. So they, they utilized ships in the past to convert uh, missions, but there was the Pongsu incident of the Australian coast in 2003. The Pongsu was caught smuggling 125 grams of heroin. The ship had been modified for long voyages and carried enough fuel and provisions to s- travel around the world without entering the port. The official was trying to link the operation to Kim Jong-il's regime. So, in reality... Pyongyang doesn't have the capacity in terms of all the, the shenanigans that's been going on. Um, the, 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 one of the, the analysis I read said that the, the um, positioning and the, and the posturing by U.S. and by um, 
Australia for that matter, with, with Bishop who's carrying on in support of the US, is that they are diverting or distracting people from looking at local issues to focus on foreign affairs. And this is a long-term strategy. It's been used for decades and decades and decades. So they're in trouble at home. Therefore, they start looking at overseas issues. So mm. it's not a new strategy. But now it's all hyped up because none of the press are looking at Korea's history. And I think we need to cover that in detail in another program. We can't do it today. But we, we also maybe will get a chance to um, actually uh, interview somebody who knows the history mm. of South Korea. I think one, one thing, just my kind of personal opinion, is I think even when you take the premise that um, North Korea, you know, could, you know, in conceivable they could, you know, send a, a bomb on, say, another country, they're a small, isolated n- nation, and if, you know, if they ever did put, participate in any kind of act of aggression, they, they would, they would, they would the one that they would suffer the effects of U.S. pretty much bombing them. That's right. The assessment I read so far in a couple of other there's another article that I read. It says that if the U.S. was to attack North um, Korea um, and Pyongyang responded to that, they will attack South Korea, and they are capable of wiping out one third of the South Korean population, mm. and that is not good for the U.S. Yeah. It's not good PR. It's human rights violation if, mm. if the U.S. does do that. So, you know, the, the problem at the moment is we've got a president in the U.S. who is very callous, um, does not talk, talk in terms of human rights and sovereign rights of countries, and he does not respect anybody else. Um, so we've got a huge problem. Um, so this, this, you know, excitement and kerfuffles going on around North, South, North Korea and, and the U.S. is in a sense a furphy, but it can turn to real if the U.S. attacks. That's yeah. a problem we have. And both countries have nuclear weapons. Mm. And I guess that's what scares people. And as I said, we'll, we'll cover this more in detail in another program, but we need to um, find someone who's well-versed in the history because the history of why is North Korea the way it is? Mm. You know, it's, it's something that we need to explore because none of the other media is covering it. So we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, just to come to shame, because there's lots of other things to discuss in international politics, um, this is just um, a quick article that was reprinted in the latest copy of Green Left Weekly. Um, it is about the presidential candidate um, in France, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, yes. um, who is um, surging as um, in the third spot, although the presidential election system, I kind of don't really understand yeah, how it works, but yeah. all we can talk, but we can talk about the politics of the candidates and what we can say with confidence is that Jean-Luc Mélenchon who is presenting himself as a genuine alternative to the far-right candidate that many people know, um, Marine Le Pen, and free market candidates Francis um, Fillon and um, Emilio Marken. Um, <coughs> um, Jean-Luc Malakonen has surged into the third spot in France's presidential race, whose first round is set for April 23rd, so that has passed, and he's still apparently doing pretty well. Oh, no, that actually hasn't passed. That is the twi- word that is a few days away. Um, and um, he's pitching himself as a candidate for peace and solidarity. Um, he's One of his um, most radical um, policies is that he anyone who earns over 400000 in France, he wants to tax all of that. So basically setting a maximum income of 400000 So that basically... 
basically means you know um, rich people, um, rich billionaires have to pay massive amounts of tax. Lots of tax. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Uh, And um, I kind of I find it interesting that um, I first heard of Genloke Monoconon in um, 2012, and this was before I got into radical politics. And um, I remember thinking when he put forward that tax I remember thinking to myself that is a fantastic idea I'm fully behind <laughs> it <laughs> and so but there he's um he, he's definitely um being described as the Corbyn or it, the Bernie Sanders of France and is running a very similar kind of populist campaign um he's even there's some interesting characteristics he's doing holographic meetings so he's doing sort of meetings where He's managed to talk to simultaneously address over hundreds of thousands of people in multiple cities in France because of this holographic technology, um, which is just one kind of highlight. Um, but he also is representing kind of one, just one interesting kind of note, um, thing to note is, um, he used to be a member of, um, the Socialist Party, um, which is kind of like the ruling party of France similar to the Labour Party in Australia. Mm. Um, but he, um, back in, I think back in 2011, 2010, around that period, he broke away from the Socialist Party um, because they, weren't sniff- um, they were conceding to neoliberalism and that he broke, um, he, um, he broke away to form his own left party. And his party, um, one of the things I do know about the French presidential um, system is um, to be able to be nominated as president, you have to get the endorsement of um, other parties. And so he's essentially got the endorsements of the left front and the Communist Party, which are all far-left parties, um, who actually have a number of parliamentary positions. And um, so that is how he's able to secure the nomination to run the president. So um, we're just talking about um, French um, presidential elections and the rise of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, who's the left, far left, well, close to the, le- the far left um, candidate in um, France. Um, but there's more, in other more in, um, interesting news that's um, happening in the UK. <laughs> um, yes. So basically, um, the current Prime Minister, Theresa May of the Tories and the um, Conservative Party, has basically called for an early general election um, in June, on June the second, I think it might be the June the second, or some other date off the top of my head. Um, but basically, what um, this is going to shift politics. Um, basically, politics is going to be put into a kind of a very interesting position, especially in the context of Jeremy Corbyn being the leader of the opposition. Um, even though um, Labour has actually been doing fairly poorly in um, approval polls, um, the exciting there is a Anything is possible, and Jeremy Corbyn has welcomed has welcomed the the general um, the early general nationalists, and he said he's willing to he's going to put the case out there for a fairer Britain, a Britain you know that puts the interests of people um, before profit, and you know basically all the kind of radical things that you know free CR is for. <laughs> and um, but it's going to be I think it's going to be very interesting because I never thought I would you know see the day where I'll where my position as someone of the radical left would be to basically say, you know, the left needs to come together and just do whatever it can to get Labour elected. That's right. Left unity. It's on the cards. And because basically um, 
it, it, Jeremy Corbyn's even admitted that, you know, oligarchs and, you know, um, corporations and, are not <laughs> going to like him. They're not, they're not of going to be not. happy with him being elected um, because he represents probably the greatest threat to the establishment in the UK. Yep. And um, that's why um, the establishment is also keen to attack him at every single turn in the media. And you even have the undermining of him from his very own party. Yes. Although, fortunately, there's some good news happening. Um, but, though I think it's what's happening is probably to serve a different purpose. But a lot of the um, sitting MPs, um, who a number of them, although not all yet, who are of the Blairite faction, the right faction of the Labor Party, have effectively basically decided they're not going to stand for general election and they're going to um, resign. They should. They should be ashamed of themselves for supporting Blair. Yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 the complicating factor for Corbyn is that within the Labor Party and all the, the young people who join the Labor Party is extremely popular. But the problem is these... Um, the the no vo- no the Brexit votes you know the Liberal Democrats are using that as a platform as a, a strength to, for themselves because they advocated a no vote, mm. whereas Corbyn um, advocated a yes vote. So it it's it may be oh, complicated. That's to, correct, to correct you there, no Corbyn actually campaigned for a Remain vote. Um, that was his position. Yeah, same thing. Yes, you yeah. know. So that's remaining in in the um, EU. So we, we've got um, a, a Tory party that was basically, in in a sense, torn apart because of the yes vote being a majority. Then you had Corbyn, who actually supported that position to remain. You had the Liberal Democrats, who uh, had advocated a no vote. Oh, they um, yep, they advocated for remain. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So. What happened? What happens now is um, if Brexit, which already it's 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 finished, it's history. They got to do it. You know, there, there's no turning back. If that is going to have an influence on the electorate, or uh, the actual politics within the UK is going to be an, uh, something that the electorate are going to to um, uh, consider seriously. And the and one more issue that also we need to look at. In, in the framework of UK elections is that the Scottish Party, Nationalist Party, is also vying for separation or to secede from the UK and, and they want to remain in the EU and they will take their own vote if they do. So there, there are multiple factors impinging on this on this election. It will be very interesting to see how it, it pans mm-hmm. out. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, my gut tells me it will be a very close election um, because Corbyn is actually very popular among the working class people mm. and the workers and, and women and anti-war, um, like he was, he was president or secretary of the uh, anti-nuclear movement uh, CDC in, in, in the UK. So it would be very interesting to see which way it swings. We should actually get, get someone um, from mm. the UK to talk to. I think Ed Hudson might be a person to mm. talk to and see how it goes. Well, but that, they, are the, they are the different forces in play at this stage. It's only starting, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think one of the most um, the important thing is um, within Labor's large membership, they actually have to mobilise that membership right. and they actually have to involve them in political activity, for example, you know, if I was in the UK right now, I'd probably hopefully spend every single bit of free time, you know, doing stores, sure you know, you going, doing door knocking for um, Labor. Mm. Um, but I guess just to talk a bit, I just want to make a bit of a comment about the Liberal Democrats. And there's a complicated factor with the Liberal Democrats in the fact that um, 
they're basically campaigning on this whole notion that they're basically looking, they want to put forward a case for another, um, for another referendum and they're trying to cater to, to the kind of people who voted for Remain and the people who, who want to keep on campaigning um, because basically, I think Corbyn's position is they accept the outcome yeah. of there's no turning the back. Yeah. Where, um, but the other issue with the Liberal Democrats is they play quite a um, a role that's actually not that kind of is undermining of the left because they actually have um, ruled out, you know, you know, for example, if they want a certain amount of seats, they've actually ruled out forming a coalition government with. Mm. Um, Labor, but they've not ruled out forming a coalition government with um, the Tories. Well, that tells you where they stand politically. And, of course, that's basically been their history. They've always, you know, because um, they've always sided with the Tories in the the part of um, Tory Roach Trump. Of course, what could happen is if Labor wins uh, an overwhelming majority and which I don't think is likely to happen, but if they won a, close. Uh, yeah. a great, a good lead, then then the Liberal Democrats would be forced to concede to Labour. If they have to form a coalition. Let's see how it goes, because yeah. I can't see the Scottish party not supporting Labour, but, you know, you yeah. never know. Well, that, um, there's a complicated um, factor that um, Labour has ruled out, Jeremy Corbyn especially, has actually ruled out a coalition with the Scottish National Party on the basis that the Scottish National Party has actually voted for some austerity measures in um, in Scotland. Hmm. So it's going to be interesting how it all pans, uh, all the chess pieces move in this um, mm. uh, election in the UK, and that it's going to have an impact on, you know, whether or not the UK is going to be aligned to the US. Because if Corbyn wins, let's say they, let's say theoretically speaking, or or you know, just imagine if if, if Corbyn, the Labour Party wins, <laughs> he will be he will not be such a good friend to Trump. So that's going to change the balance of forces. Although Trump is like immune to any of these things, you know, he'll just, he's just, oh, somebody told me he's such an, uh, he, he's got mental health problems. This is what <laughs> the Norm Sanders I was talking to yesterday about the Korean issue said, oh, he, you know, he, he, psychiatrists, a group of psychiatrists have, have signed a paper saying that he should have his mental health examined. But, Nevertheless, the, the, the forces will be realigned if, if Labour wins in, in the UK, but wait and see. Yeah. Well, in, Too many um, pieces. in this um, discussion, um, we could be lit three month, two to three months from now, you know, yeah. in, in the, my optimistic future, we could be living in a future where Jean-Luc Mélenchon is the President of France <laughs> and um, Jeremy Corbyn is the Prime Minister of the UK. We can only hope, <laughs> Jacob, we can only hope. Okay, um, there's um, another issue you wanted to talk about. Yep, um, you wanted to talk about something, Lali? Um, I thought I could take up, take up something in uh, in India um, where there, there's a huge strike um, from the Maruti or by the Maruti Suzuki automa- uh, automobile worker, factory workers and the charges of murder. Eighteen workers were convicted for minor offences and. 13 workers, all leaders of the Maruti Union, were found guilty of murder. The Maruti workers planned to appeal the verdict in the High Court. Um, why are workers being jailed for murder? The story at the Maruti is familiar, one in India's uh, industrial scene. It's interesting because the state in which this is happening um, is in political turmoil because their chief minister or 
they're equivalent to the premiers of the states here, recently died, and in, it's in, in, in a sense in political limbo. Uh, a lot of court cases uh, flying left, right, and center. But the Maruti Suzuki factory has been raking in heaps, in heaps of profit as can be expected. And the labor law violates, um, um, violations are rampant in the entire belt where the, this, this industry exists. So India labor laws recognize the right to form unions on paper. It also has a very strong left history from the past where India used to have a very strong relationship with the Soviet Union soon after independence. And the independent movement itself um, established a fairly uh, reasonable, if not a strong, um, labor, labor law environment, so to speak. So what we have is the reality here today now, given that Modi's taken over and even Indira Gandhi had changed the whole political um, landscape of India, uh, the law, the the reality is that to form a union is not is met with immediate victimization. Those who are seen as leaders are either transferred to another factory or sacked. In some cases, they can even be murdered, and we know that from the history of of. Um, many parts of India. So on the 18th of July, 12 Marathi workers agitated outside the factory to the gate um, and their comrades were being obje- uh, subjected to beatings by factory security, which is a common practice in industrial belts. They stormed into the factory to rescue their comrades. So this battle has been brewing for many years now and um, now we have a strike um, and a struggle going on there and there's waves of solidarity across the Manisa industrial belt um, and one of the um, activists there quotes a worker from uh, Bell Sonica a Suzuki sub- subsidiary in the same area says that today it is Maruti tomorrow it could be us in jail we want our comrades to be released by Maruti has, uh, but Maruti has already united workers more than any trade union could so the attack by the bosses has actually um, reversed the um, dissipation of workers and the lack of unionization. In other words, the unions are getting stronger and more people are joining up. Another worker speaking to Sadie um, called, recalled how when he was on the run from the police, he'd sneak into Manisa in the dead of night, starving, penniless, and he'd lock on Maruti knock on Maruti workers' doors, even if he didn't know him personally and without a word, he'd push money, clothes and food into them, into um, his hands. They'd say, you're fighting for all of us. So there was this surreptitious support. Um, as I say, you can always find a way of supporting people if you wanted to. So Maruti and Prikol are rem- uh, reminders that India is seeking to criminalize unions, even as its government is seeking to erode the, and destroy existing labor laws. Modi welcomes the multinational corporations make in India, is their promise, and uh, promising them a docile labor environment and cheap and good quality labor. Uh, suppressing unions is a priority for the government in such a climate, but it is not finding it easy to succeed with his attempts of suppression because India's workers know better and they've got a history of radicalization across India. And that this is only in the South and in one state um, because you find that you find that um, workers across India are very aware of their rights. 
Anyway, you're listening to Green Life Weekly. And we are moving on to the next section of this program. We've got Mahmoud from the um, Turkish community in, uh, not Turkish, the Kurdish community in Melbourne. And we're going to talk about the recent um, referendum held in Turkey by President Erdogan. Good morning, Mahmoud. Hi, good morning. How are you? Thank you, thanks. <laughs> now, um, maybe we should start with what you think about the referendum. Yeah, look, uh, uh, AKP government and President Erdogan uh, did what he does best, uh, 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 cheat again, and there was a big election fraud in uh, Turkey, unfortunately. Mm. And um, I believe Erdogan had particular reasons for holding this election. What did you understand that he was aiming to do by having this referendum? Currently, uh, Erdogan is the president of Turkey. He is using executive power, implementing this power, which is not uh, legal, which is not uh, constitutional. He would like to make this constitutional and also save himself uh, in future uh, any further uh, trail or, or, or be, be in court. And main reason uh, is want to legalize all this uh, power and be president of Turkey maybe next uh, 10 years mm. and uh, and avoid uh, yeah avoid any um, any corruption trial uh, any other political trial and mainly is this self interest uh, not not the interest of people of Turkey yeah. Um, why can you tell me, um, because um, recently um, we've heard that um, there was a number of uh, hunger strikers in Turkey. I think there were Kurdish. What can you tell me about what's happening yes. there? Look, look Kurdish uh, political prisoners, they started hunger strike about two months ago. I think when they end their hunger strike struggle, it was uh, six, uh, 62 days. And mm. the first group, the main reason in uh, Turkish uh, well, Turkey prisons now, it's like uh, 1980s when coup happened. Those prisons almost doesn't have any rights. And, for example, if, if any prison guards want to come and make strip search, they, they do it. And if they don't want to give them any newspaper, they won't give them, and they, they um, won't give them books. And when they, um, when they have family visits and they while they take them, that they beat them on the way, and even they put some tag on them, say a terrorist, and uh, it's very unbearable uh, situation in, in Turkish uh, prisons. And also those prisons, they demand this situation, uh, this situation to be humane, and also to there is a, a big isolation on Kurdish leader Mr. Öcalan last two years. Uh, and almost no one see him. Just once his brother able to visit him. They want this isolation to end as well. That was the main reason they start hunger strike. Um, but they end up uh, hunger strike two days ago. We know the first group who start hunger strike. Their health condition is very bad. They need proper treatment. Otherwise, they're gonna have some permanent, uh, permanent, uh, permanent. Uh, 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 sickness or, or disability. Mm. So th- they've had a, a long battle uh, on the Kurdish front, and that that is one part of the big struggle that's going on on, on Turkey. But going back to Erdogan, um, the, the as I understand it, the um, fear that the, the uh, referendum will deliver 
uh, a particular advantages to Erdogan, uh, not Erdogan, um, yeah, Erdogan, is to, he, to appoint and dismiss govern, government ministers as he pleases and Definitely, to take yeah. back the leadership of the ruling party and govern till, two, as you said, 2029. Yes. And the plans foresee the presidential and general elections in 2019 with a maximum of two five-year terms. Um, is that all or is there more to this, this um, attempt you by the Erdogan? total control of countries. There won't be division of power, which any democratic country is supposed to be division of power. And he can appoint all the judges. He can appoint constitutional court judges, which is 15 of them. And he can appoint 13 of them. And two of them will be appointed by the parliament, but he will have majority of parliament or whoever be president. Uh, in this case, and, uh, and judiciary will, will be under control of uh, this president. Parliament will be under control of uh, this uh, president. And he'll have executive uh, power. He can call any time of state of emergency. He can call any time uh, snap uh, election. He can dismiss ministers. He can appoint ministers out of uh, uh, parliament. Parliament uh, will uh, lose all its power. Hmm. But um, it's already um, becomes apparent that um, Aragon, um, or in the in of we've currently the system that's currently in place within the power he wields, he was already able to um, arrest a number of um, MPs from from the HDP party. That's right. And yeah, um, that, that, yeah. you definitely uh, right. I mean. They, uh, they did it, this for many reasons, but one of the reasons before this referendum to witness uh, pro-Kurdish, pro-democratic party, HDP, they are uh, currently now it's 14 MPs in jail. They are two days ago, they arrested another MP. Uh, but uh, uh, removing their parliamentarian immunity, because uh, as a parliamentarian, they shouldn't be in, in jail. They, they, could, they could be in trial. This was against the current uh, Turkish constitution, but they didn't even follow up current uh, Turkish constitution. Uh, be- before uh, any parliamentarian, before uh, in front of uh, court, before they found guilty, uh, they can't be removed from parliament, they can't be uh, put in jail. But this, they didn't uh, even, as I said, follow their own constitution. Uh, they put all parliamentary, hasty parliamentary in, in jail. So how do you see the situation for the Kurds? Because there's so much been going on in that in that area with uh, refugee problems and so on, and of course the the huge battle in Syria that's going on. So what is the situation, firstly, um, for the Turks as a whole, um, as a nation, and perhaps we can talk about the Kurds after you you go through that one. Yeah. Look, uh, for the Turks, if I mean it's already. Uh, Erdogan uh, declared victory. Even before uh, uh, a high uh, election commission uh, uh, told the result, uh, because it was so close, they uh, called for victory, and Erdogan says it's already done, it's finished, and we're going to go ahead with this. But uh, but there is big opposition, almost 50-50, and uh, they got 55, uh, 51% and 49% uh, of Kurds and Turks they against this changes. Mm. And last couple of days, mm. there is a protest all in Turkish main uh, cities, uh, streets of uh, uh, Turkish main uh, uh, cities. For uh, Turkish people, the, 
in our opinion, there was at least 55 or 56% no. But as, as I said, there was a fraud. There is big opposition against uh, Erdogan. I think the opposition is uh, bigger than even Erdogan or AKP thought. When they called for a referendum, they were expecting to get at least 65% yes. This didn't uh, happen at, at all. Uh, uh, future of Turkey, unfortunately, is, is dark. I can't see... I can't see any any bright future as long as Erdogan and AKP they rule unconstitutional and for Kurds situation for Kurds is not good at all as well. I mean during a referendum in many, for example, many many village which controlled by village guards and village guards force people to have open vote, which is not legal. Um, and many ele- ele- uh, election polls, the uh, uh, police or, or army member, they came in election polls, which is not uh, again legal. They forced people to vote for uh, for years. And in in, in in terms of general condition in uh, Kurdistan, in Turkey, uh, it's not good at all. Currently, as you know, uh, AKP allied itself also far-right uh, National Action Party, and both of them want to eliminate uh, Kurdish resistance, Kurdish uh, struggle. But uh, we, be- we believe uh, they can't do that. Yes, there are going to be more uh, more harm to Kurds, Kurdish civilians, but the Kurds know how to struggle uh, uh, over the history. Yes. In terms of uh, Syria and in Syria, um, Kurds, I think the good things over there, maybe first time over the history, Kurds able to come together with other um, nationalities or Arabs or Assyrians. They're working um, uh, together, and which is uh, good, uh, but uh, we don't know what really USA wants in uh, Syria, what Russia wants in Syria. I don't think so. These both countries, they're really concerned about democracy, equality, social justice, or no. human rights. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately, their policies um, affecting future of uh, people of Syria and Kurds as, as well. Mm. In, in general terms, I, I believe Kurds will succeed uh, at the end, but uh, I hope this would be sooner than later and without uh, um, any bloodshed. Hmm. So it's actually undermining the the so-called coalition's position in the, in the whole Middle East around the Syrian um, war, uh, which means Turkey is very quickly losing credibility in, in relation to. I think they had refugee policy. They had included Turkey, and and, and Erdogan was trying to build up his reputation as a a wonderful guy who supports refugees, was willing to take refugees, and so on. But from what I understand, that um, you know, ab- that attempt to make himself look all rosy has completely gone. D- would you think that? So you mean uh, Erdogan lo- lost his credibility uh, and position in Syria with with the so U.S. and the other Western countries because of look, the way uh, he's doing. He lost his credibility long, long time ago. But uh, for U.S. and Russia, I think credibility is not uh, for a problem. Erdogan, he can make U-turn anytime. Mm. And uh, about six, seven months ago, he was calling uh, Putin the guy who have blood in, in his hand. And then now he's calling uh, Putin is uh, Putin is my uh, my brother and my ally. And now he uh, Erdogan wants to 
work with Trump. And we know Trump and Erdogan, they also have business interests. Yes, of course. Uh, I think Trump, Trump have in, uh, or Trump's son-in-law, or they have big business uh, investment in, in Turkey. Mm. I mean, uh, therefore, uh, I wouldn't surprise... I mean, in fact, they shouldn't support Erdogan at all. They know how he supports uh, Islamic State or radical Islamic groups and how he uh, encouraged them to uh, go and... Uh, uh, or kill Kurds or, or the other other minorities, and Turkey was, still is a, is a base for those those groups. They train there, they get all their uh, arms from Turkey, and they cross Turkish border freely. And currently, those who committing uh, crime or terrorist acts in Europe, most of them uh, gone there via Turkey, and they all know this, but they don't have any ethics, unfortunately, when it comes to their uh, interests, their business interests. Otherwise, I know Trump's in Trump's administration, they know better than us, uh, or Russian administration, they know better than us how much Turkey involved this bloodshed in Syria. But as I said, there is no human values and ethics, unfortunately, when it comes to those uh, in neoliberal politics. Mm. So I also believe there are some court cases that have been launched against this referendum due to, the, to what is seen as a highly corrupt referendum. Do you know anything about the cases? Look, uh, First, uh, the, the opposition parties, including HDP, they, uh, uh, they uh, went to High Election Commission and asked them to uh, ask them to reconsider uh, this referendum, but they reject because they're controlled by AKP government. Now they go in uh, Turkish uh, constitutional court, but they also controlled by government. I don't think so. They're going to get any results from that. Mm. If they do, it would be surprised. Yes, so they they are hoping to go somewhere, but the the chances are very slim, as you say. The, the one of the sort of main issues was in in this election there was a many fraud, but one of them there is close to two million votes, which is not stamped, unstamped votes and envelopes, according to the Turkish constitution or Turkish High Election Commission. If any vote unstamped, if they don't have high uh, election commission step on them, they don't consider, they don't count them. Mm. But w- one of the AKP MPs, which is also a member of a high election committee, he asked them to uh, consider and count uh, this uh, uh, election, uh, uh, sort of this ballot, uh, this, uh, and uh, they just uh, did that. And this is uh, unlawful. Mm. It shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. It, it shouldn't have been included. Hmm. No, yeah, as I said, Turkey has very poor constitution. But according to Turkish constitution and rules, this is unlawful. It, hmm. it, they shouldn't count this uh, about two million votes, and most of them now we we, we think it's, it's, it's yes because just over one million votes would change the result. And uh, absolutely, no, no, no would win. Yeah, and it's such a and, narrow, narrow win too, isn't hmm. it? No, look in. Some uh, uh, station poll, there is 100% attendance. Even people is not there. Some towns, some villages, especially in Kurdistan, there is many seasonal workers. They are not uh, in their area, but in their area, 100% attendance. And some station polls, 100% yes votes. It's obvious this is fraud. Yep. Mm. And and they didn't really win this time. I think opposition was uh, stronger than AKP Erdogan thought, but... Uh, with fraud and with cheating and with controlling all 
High Election Commission and um, Constitutional Court, and they since they gone able to get away. But I, I believe uh, opposition will get stronger and stronger. Even they mm-hmm. want to oppress more, but they can't stop opposition. The opposition of Turkish people and Kurdish people. Mm, one last question from Jacob. Yeah, I just have one last question, and um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I kind of know the answer to the question, but I think it's um, it would be just a good one to ask. What has kind of been the position of the international community, um, especially the ones aligned with Turkey, um, in response to Aragon? And because you know, clearly all these things he's doing sound reek of like he sounds like a dictator. <laughs> yeah. Look. Uh, uh, for uh, in terms of election, uh, there was a many European uh, observers in Turkey, and they also said there is a, a fraud, and they now preparing a report. Therefore, um, many European leaders they didn't congratulate Erdogan. They, usually, they give call and congratulate. They didn't do. There is uh, uh, there is opposition growing in Europe as well uh, against Erdogan, especially from European people or European media. But European politicians, it's uh, it's still words, no action, not not any concrete action. They they show their opposition, maybe more than before, but mm. not any action. Uh, I think as long as Erdogan serve for their interest, even business interest, if their business uh, uh, still can operate uh, in Turkey, even they still can invest. Uh, in Turkey, they wouldn't be much uh, worried about democracy of Turkey. But uh, once this situation still affects their investment, their business uh, with, with Turkey, I think they will be more uh, worried in, in that time, maybe take more concrete action. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Mahmoud. Um, we'll have to end it there. Um, thanks for um, you know, giving us a, a lot of insight into what's happening to Turkey. And, um, we look forward to hearing more um, as, when, a, as, as, situation, as, as yeah. the situation developments. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. So um, I've got a good um, news story to share. <coughs> um, many have um, um, about um, Asia Pacific um, groups um, support um, supporting um, supporting a, a supporting statement um, in support of Venezuela and opposition to U.S. intervention. Um, it states here that um, as Venezuela and its elected left-wing government faces a series of violent right-wing protests, attacks from the right across the region and threats from the United States, a range of left-wing and solidarity groups in the Asia-Pacific region released this statement. Um, in defence of the Bolivian protests against um, the right-wing counter-revolution, no to foreign intervention in Venezuela, we, the undersigned organisations, express our support and solidarity for the people of Venezuela and the government of the Bolivian government republic of Venezuela against the ongoing threats of counter-revolution and violent attacks orchestrated by right-wing forces with the backing of the U.S. imperialist power. The right-wing opposition forces in Venezuela have been aggressively campaigning and stirring up the sentiment to remove President Nicolas Mandura. The right-wing forces are exploiting the institutional conflict between the Supreme Court of Justice and the opposition-controlled National Assembly to fuel tension, escalate political violence and destabilise the economy. You know, the aim is to, they state here, you know, the aim is to clear the path for imperialist intervention and enable the right to take um, power again, like what happened in the coup of 2002, 15 years ago, with a brief military coup against 
President Hugo Chavez. Um, the Organization of American States has backed the right-wing forces of Venezuela by threatening to invoke the so-called Democratic Charter against Venezuela. Meanwhile, Admiral Kurt Tidd, the commander of the United States Southern Command, also warned of responding to um, Venezuela's incidentally, which singles the pretext for U.S. In- intervention in Venezuela to aid the right-wing forces. Such a move by imperialist forces threatening the sovereignty and of Venezuela and principles of self-determination is alarming. The consequences of foreign intervention and right-wing takeover of power through violent means will be devastating for the people of Venezuela. All the social um, gains of the Bolivian Revolution for the past 18 years would be destroyed. The right-wing forces, which um, represent the interests of the oligarchy, will destroy the social missions, return nationalised companies and landed estates to their rich owners, massively cut old age pensions and slash healthcare and education. The defeat of Venezuela, the Bolivian Revolution in Venezuela, would also mean a setback for progressive forces and have wide implications for the region of Latin America. Um, so it ends here with, like, you know, three kind of particular statements, um, reinstating our support and for and solidarity with Venezuela's Bolivia Revolution, reject any form of foreign intervention that seeks to undermine the independence and sovereignty of Venezuela, call upon progressive forces around the world to rally around to support the people of Venezuela in defending the Bolivia Revolution. Yes, some horrible things happening. Even this morning um, on the ABC, they were talking about how terrible it is in Venezuela. It's almost like you're listening to the old days of um, the coup in Chile, you know, where they 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 murdered Allende. It's like this campaign uh, now, even orchestrated by the mainstream media, without looking mm. at what actually is happening, mm. um, and the support those right-wing forces are getting from overseas. They talk about you know, overseas um, intervention in other countries, but like here they the completely United. avoid it. Really, like really, it's frustrating to listen to the news because you know that from other people read the news you know, online and, and from different magazines, from different sources. And it's, it's a shame that our media is so narrow-minded, so closed, and not looking at the different aspects and different sides of this, the situation in, in Venezuela. And the, the, it is basically a strike by the ruling class of Venezuela against the people's government. That's a problem in this place, and they, and they are not willing to talk about it or discuss it. Um, so even, even, even Colombia has got into the, the act, and they don't talk about Colombia's role in it. You know, like um, Maduro had offered to provide assistance um, com- comes a day after the Colombian government slammed Venezuela following the ruling of the country's top court that specified that it could assume some responsibilities of the National Assembly as long as the legislif- legis- legislature continued to operate in contempt of the constitution and this is following that um, you know in all solidarity and love to the people of Colombia was what Maduro said when they had a problem there where the, the issue was the mudslide that happened in Colombia and left 400 people injured and 220 were missing and and despite Colombia's negative role um, Maduro from um, uh, Venezuela offered all the support he can to the people of, of Colombia and despite that um, the president of uh, Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, described the move as unacceptable um, and as an attack on the most important pillar of any democracy. And this relates to the um, court decisions in Venezuela, which is basically biased against the government and is in support of the right wing uh, or the ruling class in Venezuela. 
that Venezuela's Attorney General also slammed the court decision, uh, prompting Maduro to convene a meeting with the National Defense Council, a mechanism in the Constitution that combines various branches of the state to resolve urgent matters. So there are all sorts of shenanigans going on in Venezuela, but it's absolutely disappointing and disgraceful to see that the mainstream media, none of them, look at the inside story and, and the role Venezuela has played for, for the last couple of decades when Chavez was alive. Mm. But Latin America is always on the boil. Um, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to access news unless you are interested and have a passion for what's happening mm. there. And I'm sure the Latin American Solidarity Group will have more to say about these things in their meeting. They've got, and they've got a meeting coming up. Um, we'll, we'll announce it later. Mm. So now, what else do we have? Um, I guess um, since we only have two minutes, I can just present um, some, we were talking about the French elections um, before. Oh, I find it very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just, this, is, uh, this is actually just kind of links in with what we're talking about from before. Um, but one of the most interesting things about the left-wing candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon is um, basically he um, his position himself as wanting to align with Latin America and put himself you know in the kind of same grouping as the Ecuadorian Venezuela and Bolivia left wing governments, um, of course, which is um, he's been actually smeared for that. Oh, he's like, oh no, um, General Mélenchon, he's supporting dictators like Hugo Chavez. <laughs> Hugo Chavez dead. Yeah, but that, that's, the, that's the argument that, that's been put forward, that he's supporting communist dictators, even though obviously those aren't dictators. But Hugo Chavez never called himself a, a communist. He was more a socialist and a progressive person. So whatever mm. he's saying is utter nonsense. Mm. As, but anyway. As usual, per usual from... I know, it's, it's, it's frustrating, and, and I've got to a stage where I don't even listen, watch the news on TV anymore. Yeah. It's very annoying. Anyway, listen, anyway. We'll, um, we're going to be going to the activist calendar very soon, um, but we'll just play a quick uh, announcement. Um, CCR presents a great night of entertainment at Bella Union, Thursday the 27th of April. Jonathan Alley will MC a stellar lineup, including... 3CR DJs, Kate and Susie, spinning tracks for a lazy Thursday night. Fiona Scott-Norman's one-woman show, The Needle and the Damage Done. Ian McFarlane's book launch of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop And an unleashed version of Super Flutie's free association radio show with Clem Basto, Casey Bonetto, Scott Edgar and Christos Chorkas. That's Saturday, the 27th Thursday, of Thursday, the oh. 27th of April, Bella Union at Trades Hall. Doors open at 6.30. For tickets, go to bellaunion.com.au or at the door if not sold out. This is a 3CR benefit. So see you there. Welcome back to Green Left Weekly, your Friday edition. So we are moving on to announcements and Jacob, find away. Right. So this is turns, um, eh? this is from the activist calendar, but we have a pretty big weekend of activism tomorrow. Um, we got um, this. We have the March for Science, um, which you know this is a bit of a description. Um, recent policy changes have caused heightened worry among scientists. Um, the incredible immediate outpouring so has made it clear that these concerns are also shared by hundreds of thousands of people of the world. Um, 
So basically, the politicisation of science has given policymakers permission to reject overwhelming evidence, and it is a critical and urgent matter. It is time for people who support scientific research and evidence-based policies to take a public stand and be counted. Um, one of the interesting kind of political... Con- this will be at 1pm at the State Library this Saturday, but one of the more interesting political contexts is um, it's part of kind of links with the whole Donald Trump phenomena, and there's a lot of... Um, there's National March Science Rallies happening all around the United States. So this will be kind of linking up with um, the United States and what's happening there, and there will also be other rallies across the world as well. Mm. Okay, I think we should also talk about the um, ongoing picket and battle at the Fletcher Insulation uh, Company, and this indefinite stoppage at the Dandenong plant that continues with the AWU members. They're fighting to get a fair deal for the employer, f- from the employer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Fletcher's best EA offer was zero pay increases and conditions slashed. Throughout the industrial action, there has been a 24-hour-a-day community protest at the gates of the site in 127 Frankston Dandenong Road. Um, these workers are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly long-servicing long-serving, with at least one-third of them working at the same place for 30 years. So if you are around the area, uh, if you've got time to spare, please visit these um, workers who are striking. They've been there for more than 50 days, so they will be grateful to see some support from the community, um, and they are standing strong from uh, what I've uh, heard so far. The other uh, ongoing thing is, uh, not well, ongoing from... um, until Friday, May the 26th, is a photography exhibition of the Rohingya refugee crisis in color. It's at the Fitzroy Library, 128 Moore Street, Fitzroy. So please um, go and have a look at this because the Rohingya issue has been pushed to the background, um, given all the other stuff that's going on and trumping in the, in the front of the news almost on a daily basis. People forget that there are refugees um, being... Um, you know, forgotten, um, who are suffering from from Burma Thai border, and um, and, a, and a particular difficulty with the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi is um, in power in um, Burma, and the crisis continues, and the ignoring of the Rohingya plight continues. So that might be a good opportunity to have a look at some of the issues there. Yeah. Um, on this um, Saturday, though, um, after the March of Science, there will be a public forum on organised by Refugee Action Collective. It's titled Eyewitnesses Speak Out, Close the Camps and Bring Them Here. And they'll be at 3pm at the ANF, ANMF House. The Nurses Union House. Yeah, which is at 540 Elizabeth Street in the city. Um, there will also be happening sort of simultaneously with these... The other two events on Saturday will be the West Papuan Office Open Day, which will be from 1 to 3 p.m. And the West Papuan Office is, is not located at suit um, 211 at 838 Collins Street in Docklands. Yes, and people should um, try and make this one because it's, it's it's been a huge struggle for the people of West Papua. Um, given that the Australian government supports the Indonesian government in what they're doing to the West Papuans to, to an extent where they can't even raise their flag um, in their own country, uh, it'll, it'll be very helpful f- to the community here if people turned up to support them. Mm. Um, next Monday on April 24th, there'll be a public story, the um, public meaning, I mean, the real story of why we go to war featuring um, Wad Kontak, 
Um, Michael Quantock. Hammond. Quantock. Um, it's Michael hard to pronounce. <laughs> Hamill Green, um, Retinam War Resistor, Brunswick Rogues and Anti-Conscription Coalition Choirs, and it will feature Alice Malik um, Yugiza, who is a poet. Um, entry is free, and it's at the Bella Union um, at 7pm, and it's hosted by the Medicals Association for Prevention of War. And and entry is also free. Okay. There's another one um, for the theatre goers. Uh, there's a, a play, I guess, called Parasites, Two teenagers meet in an asylum seeker processing center somewhere at the edge of an unnamed country, stuck in a nothing in between place too long. Love and hope seems like distant, half-forgotten things. This encore production of acclaimed Swedish writer Nina Tesman's sublime play explores the impact made by small offers of kindness in a cold world. And this is the being held at the well-known La Mama Theatre, which is on 205 Faraday Street. So you can look that up on the Google map. I'm sure you'll find it easily enough. And bookings are, can be done um, on, uh, the, on, on the computer. And there's also a walk for West Papua. So join the walk for West Papua in solidarity with the Papuan community, calling for self-determination over their land. And they will walk 73 kilometers from Geelong to Melbourne to signify the distance between Australian Territory and West Papua, our closest neighbor. And on the 26th of April, which is a Wednesday, there is an anti-nuclear film screening and there will be discussion. Atomic April is called. Uh, one year ago, the federal government announced its intention to try to impose a national nuclear waste dump on the land of the Enyamam um, Tanha Endimam. Sorry, I'll try and pronounce it again. Edna Madana, traditional owners in SA, um, the South Australian Flinders Ranges. So it's 6.30 at Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street. That's on the 26th of April. And it's being hosted by the um, AC Nuclear Free Coalition. On the 27th of April, there's a fundraiser. And now hear this party for your right to fight. It's a no-brainer that keeps Melbourne's diverse community radios on air. Um, and it's vital for the soul of our city. So that is um, the announcement we played earlier at the... Um, uh, Bella Union at Trades Hall on 27th of April mm. with Fiona Scott Norman, Ian McFarlane, Super Fluty DJs, and McJonathan Alley. Mm. Um, they will also, um, next Friday, we'll, um, we'll have two important events. There'll be a Workers' Memorial Day, Remember the Dead, Fight for the Living, at 10.30 a.m. outside Trades Hall. Um, and also kind of sort of nearby, um, it, there'll be a rally to celebrate, um, to save the um, the Victoria Markets. Um, basically, the, the um, Victoria Markets is under attack by the Lord Mayor Doyle, who wants to attempt to, um, you know, repurpose the market as an entertainment space and gourmet, gourmet food precedent. He basically wants to turn into Melbourne Central. Okay, um, that's just how I describe it. He wants it's to disgraceful what he's doing. Commercialise it into and turn it into just basically another Melbourne Central. So that's um, so. If you are completely outraged about that. 
um, come to the rally to save the Victoria markets at 11.30am at the corner of Queens and Ferry Streets and f- or follow the crowd. Um, and we'll hopefully be doing an uh, interview with one of the organisers of that rally at some point next Friday. And, um, yeah, so... Yeah, it's just a, this is appalling because they're destroying... Well, they've destroyed well, many of the small shops because now big supermarkets and chain organised uh, corporations are in charge of uh, where we go, what we buy. Um, now they want to destroy the markets. Vic market's under attack. Preston market's also under, under attack. Mm. And there's actions there. I have all the details here. But it's coming up as well in yeah, May. They'll be so coming we'll, up next May. So yeah, we'll so we, we will make the announcement then. But if you support markets, if you enjoy going to the markets, and Vic market's such a legendary um, trademark uh, for, for, for Melbourne. All tourists find Vic Market uh, such an attraction and this is very helpful for people who want to go shopping so in the afternoon they have brekkie or lunch or whatever it is. And Vic Market was actually saved by the old building, um, the BLF, when uh, then, this is 40 years ago um, probably, when um, the government wanted to destroy it and do a similar thing or probably build flats or something, um, so this is an important fight that the community has to win. We've got to save the markets. It's an important uh, activity for people and, and that gives choices, which doesn't have the monopoly that chain corporations have. So please, guys, or people out there who appreciate markets, Vic Market and Preston Market are up for grabs. So let's fight this battle. Yeah, yeah the 457 has put – I couldn't sleep last night because I was so – Intensely angry about it. Mm. I was thinking, you know, this is like white Australia re-emerging. In other words, English is the only language in the world. Everything else is not worth even thinking about mm. or considering. So unless you speak English, you are unable to enter Australia. But the other aspect of this really interesting that struck me was, you know, for for decades, what the the so-called developed nations who stole, plundered, and, and you know, dredged all the wealth from the colonies into their bloody country so they can live in utter privilege. What they've done is they've got the cream of the crop in, in, from these countries. They start out by giving scholarships to the really smart people from their ex-colonies to come over to the, to the um, wealthy countries and then included them into the community. What now is happening is a similar thing, or has been happening is a similar thing. They employ people from overseas who are highly qualified, who would otherwise be contributing to the development of their own nation. They have invited, tempted, and bribed these people to come over to wealthy countries. And now they're complaining about it. There are too many of them. They have brain-drained the, co- the ex-colonies, and now they want to stop. Because they, they, they are using it for political purposes. You know, it's, first it was the, 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 um, reduction in, in training people, in education. They cut the budget drastically so they can get people from overseas who have been educated by their countries. Money has been poured into their countries to educate these kids and they are brought over to Australia to, to do the work. And now 
for local political reasons, which is what um, Malcolm Turnbull's doing, and this is happening all around the world. Um, and all the wealthy nations are doing this. America's doing it. Now, I think even in Europe, even in France, it's happening. You know, it's all, let's make America great, let's make Britain great, let's make France great, let's make Australia great. Well, who do you think made it great in the first place? It's those mm-hmm. people who were, were colonized and thrashed by these people. Uh, you've taken all the wealth, you keep mm-hmm. it, and now you say... This is the wall. You don't come come in here again. But this is particularly racist because it's focused on the values they talk about. Australia. I am still puzzled, and I'm sure thousands of people are puzzled. What is Australian values? Mm. What really irks me is if they put the same test to many Australians, they will fail. I remember when I was working in railway, uh, in, in, uh, in a railway um, is in, in Sydney, uh, people would come up to me and this, they had to fill up forms in those days to sell parcels through the, through the train. They couldn't fill up the forms because they were illiterate. They were, at that point, a million illiterate Australians. So what, they, what, what, what does it say to those people? You know, it's, it's such a racist thing. It's got so many aspects to it. It drives mm. me insane to think these guys mm. have the audacity to impose these things on workers willy-nilly mm. s- just to suit their local political stance. Yeah. Well, the, the way, the main, there's been this very, the 457 kind of issue has actually been a very divisive issue amongst workers because there's this sort of layer, there's this argument um, basically, you know, that 457 workers, you know, drive down wages and drive down working conditions. Um, but yet the reality is bosses were using, you know, 457 to do just that. But it's not the workers, the 457 workers no. that were to blame. It's actually the bosses and what the union movement, and I'll strongly argue what workers should, be, should have been fighting for, is to give those 457 workers full workers' rights because that way, you know, the bosses aren't able to use that as a dividing line. And, of course, one of the funniest things, though, actually, the kind of big irony, I think, is actually, I don't actually think they're completely abolishing 457 workers anyway. So they're they're just giving a new name to it. Um, It's sort of like, I think I could just imagine there's a lot of policy announcements that Malcolm Turnbull could make um, that could be along these lines. And one of them would could be, oh, yes, we're going to be closing down Manus and Nauru but we're going to open up this other detention centre in some other island. It'll be safer and better, but it's, but yes, we're abolishing detention centres, but oh no, we're going to build another detention centre in this way. That's sort of what the 457 visa comes off to me, like basically another sort of attempt. Um, it's because, a Clayton's uh, move, that's yeah, what it is. Because basically Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal governor try to cater toward, cave into this racist sentiment around you know, the four, five, seven visas, but, of course, they're not going to do anything but without actually doing anything about it. And, of course, a real kind of political alternative would be to... And this is why the limitations, why you should not be opposed to four, five, seven visas on, for racist reasons. You, we should be fighting for those migrant workers to have the same rights as us. And that way, the government's not able to do the... put the wool over our eyes and cater this kind of nationalism uh, um, to make it look like they're actually doing something to address the needs of workers. But the reality is actually interesting. People stop and think for a minute. English isn't the only measurement of intelligence, if Mm. at all. You know, surely knowledge is broader than just English and it's such a colonial 
strategy to use that as a main thing. And, it, and it's, it's an easy weapon because, oh, yeah, you, you know, you come here, you should be able to speak English if you want to get ahead. It's, it's common sense. But to make it into such a legalistic matter begs for criticism, I reckon. And the other one is wages. And people always talk about this. And it, I'm waiting for someone to tell me, you know what? If the 457 workers are being paid less than what local workers are being paid, why isn't the government taking action against those employers? You let them in with the 457 visas. You've got to make sure that they're paid properly and paid according to what they were contracted to do in conjunction with Australian labor. They are not being brought in here as cheap labor. You allowed it to happen, and now you're complaining about it. Mm. What the hell is going on? It's, you know, you've got so many hundreds of young kids who work in fast food industries who are being underpaid. What did you do about it? Nothing. Are you worrying about the 457 visas who also should be under your, your supervision? The problem is they cut back on, on government staff to an extent. Health and safety is put at risk. Wages like exploitation of workers is, a, is, is rampant, completely rampant. And this goes on and on and on. And yet, they put the blame on the workers. It's constant attack on the workers from a different angle. It's a very creative thing, but it's easy for people to, 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 to fall in the trap of believing it because, oh, well, they bring in cheap labor. Well, why are you allowing them to bring in cheap labor? You are the one who's implementing the law. You are the one who, who govern the immigration department. So why are you allowing it to happen? It's a question no media has asked so far. They constantly say, oh, cheap labor, cheap labor. You already have it here. You don't have to bring it in from overseas. You know, even, even the restaurant owners who are, who are judging cooking programs are in the pool over this issue. And they co- it baffles me that the media is so narrow. And, I, and thank goodness for 3CR. Uh, we can actually bring it to the fore and, and, and discuss it and bring it to the open for another Another way of looking at, at, at the whole issue. And this, this furphy by Malcolm, it's interesting. I, I rarely uh, support um, Bill Shorten, but in this case he said when the government is in trouble, they play the race card, and that's absolutely true in this case. I have to agree with Bill Shorten. Except um, Bill Shorten... Oh, he's considering it, whether to support the moves or not. Yeah. So well, he he's, he's no angel, well, but I tell well, you. Well, I saw um, there's the fact that you know, the Labor government supports mandatory detention, but then there's also the fact that um, my criticism of a lot of Bill Shorn's responses to Malcolm Turnbull is it always ends up always appealing to nationalism. Yes, like, absolutely. Yeah, um, especially one of the major things. Um, you know, this is one of my biggest kind of pet peeves with... Um, the union movement is, you know, why do we keep rallying on this whole thing around Aussie jobs? Like, it was. There are no Aussie jobs. They are they're global. It's, it's a globalized economy. Mm. What are they talking about Aussie jobs for? They need to make sure all workers are paid well. They need a good living wage. Mm. Therefore, you don't have to worry about whether there's Aussie, uh, Aussie uh, wages or Aussie jobs or Indonesian jobs or whatever jobs. Yeah. Make sure everybody's paid well. That is a fundamental well, 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 issue. Well, well, ultimately, working, we should be working towards a society where, you know, in the age of globalisation, which is used to divide, you know, workers across different countries, um, we should be, you know, fighting for a world where, you know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be allowing, you know, you know, the capitalist class to exploit, you know, um, workers in the third world, we should be fine for a world where all workers are treated with dignity all across the world and not resort to this sort of protectionist, sort of That's nationalist right. red rhetoric. 
they're actually going backwards because you know the, the way they talk, the, the way they apply national exams, going back to the protectionist um, era, um, just for their own individual political survival. It's got nothing to do with with um, saving people, helping people, supporting people. So it's it's a hypocritical way of doing it because they have no other strategy left. That's a problem. Mm. The economy is heating up and there's lots of problems with the economy. They can't manage it. They don't know how to manage it. And and to me, it points to the fact that they really don't understand capitalism as well as we think they do. Or people people put confidence in these people to manage the economy. And they are really, really botching it up. But anyway... Mm. Um, just to go on to another um, news story from Green Left Weekly. Um, this is about um, a brief article about, you know, how, a, you know, relating to Donald Trump's war drive, you know, he launched a bomb on on um, Afghanistan recently. Um, but then there's also, but those, but, you know, Afghanistan and Syria are not the only countries that are, the subject of um, Trump's war drive. Um, this is in relation to Trump doubling U.S. airstrikes on Yemen. Mm. Um, the United States administration of Donald Trump has, you know, read in here, has so far carried out at least 70 airstrikes in Yemen, um, which is more than twice as many as those carried out last year um, under the Barack Obama administration, according to data provided by the Pentagon. Um, the Pentagon said that the day that the U.S. had carried out 20 airstrikes in Yemen over the past week, the U.S. military said the airstrikes were carried out by unmanned drones, allegedly against targets and fighters belonging to al-Qaeda's branch in Yemen, regarded as one of the terrorist group's most powerful factions. The Trump administration had also carried out a limited operation in Yemen against a high-ranking al-Qaeda commander that was not granted by Obama on the grounds of being too risky. It killed more than 30 Yemeni civilians and one U.S. special officers. Um, but Another thing in addition to this is Yemen is also under military attack by Saudi Arabia and 12 of its, Saudi regional, Arabia. Of its regional allies who have been bombing the country on a daily basis since March 2015, um, killing 10,000 people. And, of course, you know, marking um, this also kind of marks, you know, two years since the beginning of the U.S.-backed um, Saudi-led invasion of Yemen. Hundreds and thousands of people poured in the streets of the capital of Sanaz to protect protest the brutality of the bombing campaign and the conflict began in 2015 March and the efforts to restore toppled President Abid Rabuda Masrul Hadi and to suppress the Shiite armed militias that opposed the Surya backed former leader. Okay, we're going coming to the end of the program. Um, so thank you very much listeners for... Oh, we still probably have two minutes left. Yeah. We've got a, uh, BZ is, um, on next. Yeah, okay, so few minutes left. Um, but if, um, I'll just make some final departing words. Um, apologies, um, to listeners that we weren't able to get, um, Owen Bennett. Just to give a quick, um, brief on what, um, what, um, the interview was going to be about. Um, there was a young man called, um, his name was Josh, um, who many listeners might have heard that he, um, died on a, um, work for the doll site um, last year um, in Queensland and so w- the interview was about the campaign related to um, getting the government to take action um, and to abolish um, work for the doll because um, you know such you know w- 
unsafe work conditions, such injustice shouldn't happen again. And also there's also the, the very exportive nature of work for the Dole programs in our welfare system. So that was what the interview was going to be about and we'll hopefully follow it up because there'll be more campaigning around that issue in the future. Um, but anyway, thank um, you listeners for listening to Green Left Weekly Radio and um, look forward to um, talking, um, speaking to you next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?